Hello, thank you for visiting the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, feel free to visit our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And now here is this week's message brought to you by Senior Pastor Adam Russell. Everybody happy? Everybody like the new arrangement here? Yeah, it's kind of cool, huh? Uh, don't you like how everybody in the room gets seen? Some of us are like, no. Yeah, just hang with it. It'll get better. It'll get better. Um, happy Sunday, everybody. So glad that you are here. My name is Adam. I'm the pastor here at the Vineyard. And it's just good to be together. Isn't it good to hear one another's voices? Even in, even in worship, there's just something about that that is so... Sweet, And if it's sweet to us, it's also sweet to God. There's something about this arrangement also that just harkens back to early church. No sound system. No sound system needed. But before we do that, I want to uh, welcome you guys to a series we're calling Bare Bones. This series this month is called Bare Bones. And the reason we're calling the series Bare Bones is because... This is a series that is all about what does it really, really mean to be a Christian? What does it really, really mean to be a follower of Jesus? What are the irreducible substances of being a disciple? Like if you were to extract everything that didn't matter and you were left with only what did matter, what would be those elements? Does that make sense? And we feel like we need to do that because I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but there are ways in which culture wants to attach things to being a disciple of Jesus, which Jesus never attaches to being a disciple of Jesus. Have you ever noticed that? So it's almost as though it goes like this. It's Jesus plus, right? It's Jesus plus this, or it's Jesus plus that. If you're going to be a good, faithful disciple, it's Jesus plus this. Or it's Jesus plus that. And the very first thing I want to do is I want to spend a moment or two just taking a few things off of us. Would that be all right? I want to take, take just a few things off of us. Uh, here's what I mean. To be a real Christian, you do not have to be a Republican. Some of us need to hear that maybe even another time. To be a real Christian, you do not have to be a Republican. Uh, Let's go further. To be a real Christian, you do not have to homeschool your children. (laughs) To be a real Christian, to be a real Christian, you do not have to be a teetotaler with respect to rock and roll. How many of you were raised in homes where rock and roll was disallowed? Anybody? Yeah, I was too. I was too. What my mother didn't know is that I had Motley Crue tapes stashed underneath my bed. <laughs> and then I got, then I got tattoos. Yeah, it's like, yeah. See how well that works. That's right. To be a Christian, you don't have to. You don't have to defend young Earth science. To be a Christian, it doesn't mean you have no doubts. 
See, one of the things that culture wants to tell us sometimes is that in order to be a faithful disciple, it means that you live in absolute certainty. And here's what I want to tell you. Uh, Being a faithful disciple will oftentimes mean not living in absolute certainty. In fact, being a faithful disciple will oftentimes lead you into uncertainty. And we could read the text a little bit and I could show you, but I don't have time because that's not this sermon. Being a real Christian doesn't mean having a life that is arranged in fake plastic perfection. Some of us know what I'm talking about here. There's this idea for some of us that to be a real follower of Jesus, there is this veneer of perfection that surrounds your life and you never admit guilt, you never admit weakness, and you never admit frailty, and you are never transparent. There's something about our lives that becomes robotic. You've never been around that kind of person. Maybe you are that kind of person. Let me tell you what, maintaining that is not the kingdom of God. It is actually the devil and it will kill you. It will kill you. It will absolutely eat you from the inside out. Being a Christian doesn't mean never encountering hard times. In fact, it means quite the opposite. Being a Christian is not believing one really big thing one time. Some of us grew up in that church, right? Where you believe this one thing and you believe it one time and you come down and you shake the pastor's hand and you get dunked in the water and then you go right on living any old way you want for the rest of your life because you did it the one time, right? That's not what being a Christian is. It's not that cavalier. It's something more substantive. And when you dig beneath all the layers, there's a few things you continually come across. If you if you strip all the layers off, if you if you pull the veneer right off of the substance, there's some things you always come to at the bottom. And one of the things that you always come to at the bottom, you find it every single time when you encounter a real disciple of Jesus, is this, the incomparable love of God. What does it mean? If you get down to the blood, and if you get down to the marrow, if you get down to the bones, the one thing you always find is the incomparable Love of God. See, here's the thing. It's so pervasive, the love of God. And because it's so pervasive, it has a way of informing all the other things that we thought were important. When you encounter the love of God, it will inform your politics. And when you encounter the love of God, it will inform your school choices. And when you encounter the love of God, it will inform your cosmological worldview. How about that for a phrase? Everyone say that with me now. Cosmological worldview. Man, that's a PhD word, isn't it? When you encounter the love of God, it will inform your rock and roll. Stones over the Beatles. And so forth. But here's the thing. You can never start with those things. You can never, ever start with those things. See, here's the thing. The life of God is never found in simply being strident about what we are for and against. That's just a recipe for anger and alienation. You always have to start with the love of God. You have to start with the love of God. You have to. You can never start with the extraneous. And here is the life of God. In simplest form, the easiest way I know to say it. You and I and everyone we know, yes, everyone who is alive and breathing in the world right now is beloved. 
We are loved by God, which is why we are doing this series. And we're going to read the scripture. But before we do that this morning, we're going to light the Christ candle. And we're going to ask that the light of the world would illuminate our hearts and our minds. Let's read Romans chapter 5, and we're going to read 11 verses. It's the text this morning. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. And because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, and we confidently and we joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead us to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because He has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with His love. When we were utterly helpless, little tiny babies, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and He died for us sinners. Now, most of us would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But that's not the way God works. Look at verse 8. But God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, He will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of His Son, while we were still His enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of His Son. So now, we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord, Jesus Christ, has made us friends of God. Amen. Amen. Well, there's a lot here, but there's only one thing I want to key on this morning, and that's the love of God. Because the love of God is the blood and the marrow of being a Christian. The love of God is the bones, it is the structure that everything else hangs on to. And being a Christian means waking up to being loved by the divine. And it's stunning. It really is stunning. And here's why it's stunning. Because God knows everything. Hang with me here just for a minute. God knows everything. He's the one person in the universe who actually has perfect perspective about the universe and everything in it, up to and including you. Up to and including you. The Bible says that God has numbered the hairs on our head. The Bible says that God knit you in your mother's womb. All of this is Bible talk for saying God knows you intimately. And here's the really crazy thing. The person who knows you best is the one who loves you most. Now, the reason that's surprising and the reason that it's so wonderful is because you and I both know a couple things about ourselves. We know that there are parts that are not lovely. 
We know that we have some things hidden in our closet that we would rather not talk about. We know that there are aspects of our character which are yet unformed and don't look much like Jesus. We know that sometimes when Kentucky loses, we say things we shouldn't. We know that there are aspects of who we are that are hard to get along with. And yet still, the most consistent thread that runs through the Bible. You hear with me, Mike? I want to make sure you get this one. Is that all the way through... God loves us even though he knows us most. The person who knows you most is the one who loves you best. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. You are dearly loved. And you are dearly loved not because you were good. And you are dearly loved not because you were smart or particularly useful. You are loved only because you are you. God is indiscriminate in his love. You might say he has remarkably low standards. It's one of my favorite things about God is his remarkably low standards. People oftentimes talk about God's love of excellence and how we should love all things that are excellent so that we can bless a God of excellence but another way to see that very coin is that God has remarkably low standards. He has placed his love and affection on all kinds of people and not just the good ones, but the dirty, rotten ones, the cheats, the tax thieves. Everybody is indiscriminately, totally and completely loved by God in their brokenness. And you can't be a Christian without some kind of a baptism into the heart of God. The Bible says that God is love. And that little statement in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 is way bigger than most of us have ever internalized. When the Bible says that God is love, what it's saying is that the entire universe was fashioned and formed by love and is now sustained by love. And so to live asleep to love, to not know the Father's love, to not experience His love, is to resist His love in some profound way. And to do so is to miss the point of your own existence. See, our lives are not just passing years in graying hair. True life is waking up to the love of God. And some people here might be thinking, well, that's just great, Pastor Adam. That sounds wonderful. But I'm not sure that I know that. You're talking about something that seems personal in a way that I haven't connected with. Not only am I not sure that I know that, I'm not even entirely sure that I can know that. I'm not even entirely sure that I have ever tasted of this goodness that you're talking about. I feel somewhat alienated from the reality that you're saying is so total, so conclusive, and so surrounding. Well, I want you to look at verse 8. I want you to look at verse 8. This verse is so important. I think it's the hinge of this text. Paul says this, But God showed His great love by sending His Son to die. Look at that first part. God showed His great love. Maybe your translation says God demonstrates His love. Anybody in the room have a God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us? That's how I memorized it as a younger man. God showed his great love. Some of your translations say God demonstrates his love. Some of your translations say says things like this. God puts his love on display. The thing that this points to more than anything else is this, that God's love is knowable. God is showing it. 
God is demonstrating it. God is putting it on display. And if you show it, if you demonstrate it, if you put it on display, the one thing that means more than anything else is that God's love is knowable. You might not know it. Maybe you have never known it. You might not have tasted it. Maybe you have no experiential knowledge of it right now. But the good news this morning is, is that God has put it on display and it can be known. It is not some metaphysical reality for the super spiritual elite. It is not some reality for the poor and the weak. It is not a reality for the super intellectual. It is just for us. God has put it on display. You can positively know it, not just here, but here. You can actually feel it in your body the god of the universe has crafted this whole thing he is sustaining this whole thing in love and love is knowable love is knowable now here's the other thing i know because there's quite a bit of us in the room and we had about this many people in first service as well one of the things i know about our church is that some of us grew up essentially tortured some of us grew up abused <clears throat> And some of us here are survivors. Some of us have stories that are filled with truly terrible experiences. Terrible homes. And when I talk like this and you reflect upon your experience growing up, the knee-jerk reaction is to think in your head or to think in your heart, Pastor Adam, what you're talking about is garbage. My home was terrible. My home was abusive. My mama was a pill popper and my daddy drank a lot and beat us all to pieces. That's some of the stories that are in here. But here's what I want to tell you. Even in the middle of your pain, even in the middle of your abuse, and even in the middle of all the things that you have survived, if you will look to the edges, you will see the love of God. Sometimes you have to look in the margins. Sometimes you have to look in the edges, but right there in it is the love of God. I want to put up a quote from Mr. Rogers this morning. This is what Mr. Rogers said, and I think this is so profound because I've seen it to be true so many times. When I was a boy... And I would see scary things in the news. My mother would say, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. See, sometimes the love of God is not in the middle. Sometimes it's on the edges. Sometimes it's in the margins. And one of the things that I've noticed is that God's love is oftentimes most in the edges and in the margins. And maybe you grew up abused and maybe you grew up tortured and maybe your mama popped pills and your daddy drank too much and beat everybody up. But you had a grandmother who welcomed you and raised you. That story is so common. And if you have a grandmother who welcomed you and raised you, you have experienced the very tangible love of God on the edges in the margins. See, here's the thing. In the middle of every tragedy, personal or national, there's always a helper somewhere, and that's the love of God. God's love is knowable. It's breaking in. It's not for the spiritually elite. It's for us. 
and the display that God has made, all of the showing that God is doing is primarily seen in His Son, Jesus. This is another way that we come into contact with the love of God. Maybe you haven't known it in your own life personally, but you can know it because God has put it on display in His Son, Jesus. Here's what I would like to say even further. You can't really know the love of God until you fix your gaze on Jesus. You can't really know the love of God until you give your life to Jesus. If you want to know what God's like, you have to look at God, at Jesus. If you want to know what the Father is like, you have to look at the Son. If you want to know what the love of God is like, sometimes we talk about love and it gets so esoteric that it doesn't have flesh and bones and a beating heart. But God's kind of love always does have flesh and bones and a beating heart because it is His Son, Jesus. There is no clearer picture. And if we put the text back up, verse 8, one of the things that we see is that Paul says that God shows us His love And what is God's love shown? Sending His Son to die. Not only is Jesus the expression of God's love, but there is a particular moment in Jesus' life that seems to be the high point of God's expression of His love. And it is Jesus on the cross. Jesus who was innocent. Jesus who was God. Jesus who was pure. Dying the shameful death of a criminal. Everyone here can know the love of God. All we have to do is look upon His Son, especially the moment that Jesus was crucified. Jesus said with His disciples at one point around the Last Supper dinner table, He said, hey, listen, this bread, this wine, it's my body, it's my blood, and do it in remembrance of Me. And what He was saying is, guys, I'm about to go through some stuff. I want you to remember Me. I want you to remember Here's the thing, you all. It's, impar- it's entirely possible. It's entirely possible to, to forget Jesus. M- most people don't wake up one day and go, you know what? Jesus is an idiot. I'm done. People don't do that. Here's what people do. People forget Jesus. And so how do we enter into the love of God? Well, we do what Jesus says. Remember me. And what is he talking about when he says, remember me? Remember my suffering. Why? Because it's for you. That's why. It's for you. We can know the love of God. And you have to ask yourself here, if Jesus is the medicine, then what's the sickness? This is so important. If Jesus was the healing, if Jesus on the cross dying a criminal's death was the healing, then what's the disease? And if Jesus was the light, then what's the darkness? See, here's the thing. You and I, we often want to believe that we're mostly okay. You and I often want to believe that we're good. Or at least that we're not that bad. But when we give in to the feeling that we're mostly okay, and when we give in to the notion that we're good, and that we're not really all that bad, it's the very blindness that keeps us from seeing our own belovedness before God. To the degree that you and I don't feel like we need Jesus is the degree to which we will reject His love. Jesus did not just die for the world. He died for me. In fact, we might want to say that together, church. Jesus died for me. Why don't we do that again? Jesus died for me. See, here's the thing. It's entirely possible to believe that Jesus died for the world. It's, it's, it's a greater revelation to begin to believe that he died for me. Here's something I've noticed in my own life. 
it's easier to believe that God loves the world than it is to believe that God loves me. And one of the things that I've noticed in my own life is that believing that God loves the world doesn't change the world. The world changers are always the people who believe that God loves them. God loves me. This is the profound waking up that is required. And God loves us, not because we're good. No, God loves us even while we were still sinners. Not because we were worthy. No, even while we were still enemies of God. See, here's the thing. One of the things that Romans chapter 5 verse 8 is saying, saying this, love goes first. True love always goes first. God didn't love you after you got your life together. No, Jesus died for you even when you were a total wreck and you were an enemy of God. Love goes first. That's who God is. When he had no hooks in you whatsoever, God gives his son. When, when there was nothing favorable about you whatsoever, Jesus laid down his life. Love goes first. No one gets love because they're a superstar. No one gets love because they're good. No one impresses God into love. Not one. No one reads their Bible enough or prays enough for God to love them. No one comes to church or serves enough for God to love them. No one gets rid of all their secular music enough for God to love them. No, not one. God just loves you because you are you. And God just loves you because he is God. He does not love you because you are good. He loves you because he is good. And this is the waking up that's required. If we're ever going to be faithful to Jesus, we have to wake up to that reality. You will never be more loved than you are right now, and you will never be less loved than you are right now. You cannot increase it. If you never change, He will not love you less. And if you change a bunch, He will not love you more. He is indiscriminate. The full fire of His heart is burning toward us right now. Tell you a little story. Several years ago, I was preaching at a pastor's conference in New Orleans. Check this out. I was preaching at a pastor's conference in New Orleans on Bourbon Street in a bar on a Saturday night. This group of pastors had rented out the bar and they held the conference there. And we are on Bourbon Street on a Saturday night. And we heard doing a Jesus conference in this bar. It was kind of a shotgun bar, you know. Maybe some of y'all been in one of those before. You know, long and narrow, and it held about 120, maybe maybe 120 people, something like that. And everything in the world is going out on the street. And I'm preaching, and on that night, on that night in particular, I felt impressed. I felt impressed by the Father to preach on His love. And in the moment of preaching about the love of God to a room full of pastors, which I realize is strange, right? Shouldn't they know? But typically, it's, it's we who do the work of ministry who most need to know it. It has a way of beating you up sometimes. And so I was there preaching on the love of God. And in the middle of preaching on the love of God, I just began to riff. That's one of the things that pastors do. You make your notes, you do your preparations, but sometimes you riff. It's like when Sam just plays a guitar solo. There's the arrangement, but we have to improvise. And in the middle of improvising, I improvised a little riff that I actually just used on you a moment ago. If you never change, he will love you. 
Now, my whole attention had been focused on this group of pastors there in the middle of this room, and I hadn't really seen what was happening because the doors were sort of open in the back and people were kind of moving around. But in the moment when I'm riffing and in the moment when I tell the room, if you never change, he will love you, my eyes fall upon what had actually happened. And what had actually happened was all the pastors were seated, but in the spaces all around the room, it had become full, and it had become full with people who were just out on the streets. And it was in that moment that I looked up and I saw... And there were all of these homeless guys, all of these guys who were blasted out of their minds, drunk out of their minds, still holding paper bags, looking terrible, smelling worse. And in the moment that I say, if you never change, he will love you. I catch eyes with a six, five transvestite in a group of hookers. And the room is just filled with everybody who's most desperate. It's as though this message of the love of God had drawn people in like the Pied Piper. And right there in the moment when I caught eyes with this guy, if you never change, he will love you. I just lost it. And I like exploded. I exploded for like three, four minutes. And how many of you understand that three or four more minutes is really long in those kinds of exchanges because it got really awkward in that room. It got really awkward in that room. And at a certain point, everybody else in the room had realized what had happened and who was among us. And in that moment, the love of God just broke out. It just broke out. And we, we kind of went into a ministry time. And that, my ministry that time that night was with transvestites and with hookers. And we held hands, and the love of God just just kept breaking in. It kept breaking in. Can I tell you something? The greatness of God's love is not that you are good or you are bad. It's that He is wonderful, and He has set His affection upon everyone. He is completely and totally indiscriminate. He loved me no more and no less than them. He loved them no more and no less than me. God had just said yes to everyone. And there was no life change required up front. None. None. Zero. In your worst, the Father is embracing. Isn't that wonderful? I'll never get over that moment. It was the best preaching moment of my life. Because this is what Jesus is and this is who Jesus is. In our very worst, God shows up. That is the love of God. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. That's what the Bible says. It says we love because he first loved us. And that brings up another important point about the love of God. It changes us. It's popular in some circles to make a big deal about the love of God, and for good reason. It's popular to talk about the primacy of God's love, for good reason. And it's popular to highlight the unconditional nature of Jesus' love, for good reason. But sometimes it's popular to talk about all of those things without mentioning that love changes us. And I can't do that. I need you to know that the love of God changes us. That the love of God rightly received will always produce change. It may not be quick. It may not be lightning. In fact, I've found that it rarely is. I've found that the things that we most need help from God on are the things that he is most willing to help us with, and they're often pretty slow. (laughs) But love always changes us. Imagine a mother holding a tiny baby who nurses at her breast. That mom just loves that baby so much, stays up with it, doesn't matter how much it cries, doesn't matter how colicky, doesn't matter how many messy diapers, it doesn't matter how fussy, it doesn't matter how chaotic, it doesn't matter how jacked up the house is and how little laundry has been done. The mom just loves that baby, and because the baby receives the mom's love, 
not just in terms of affection and not just in terms of holding and not just in terms of the place that that baby holds now in the mother's heart, but in terms of the very life that comes out of that mother into the baby, that baby does not stay the same. It grows, it matures, and it changes. And then how many of you understand that the mother who loves a baby is also changed by loving someone else? That's what love does. Love changes us. And how much more so that when the God of the universe who fashioned you, who knows every hair who's on your head, and who knows how you were and knit you in your mother's womb, how much more when that person loves you with his full force of affection? Love changes us. And so this becomes a real barometer for us. This becomes a place where we can kind of have a touchstone with how we're doing with Jesus. Not so that we feel more guilty, but so that we can just take stock. How many of you understand that God can't heal your fake life? He can only heal your real life. And so sometimes we need to take stock to see where we really, really are. So this is how it works. I'm totally and completely loved by God. But it's sometimes good to come to that and go, well, here's the thing. Maybe think about our life in not terms, not in terms of just this month or this day, but maybe in terms of five years and go, hey, am I just as bitter today as I was back then? Like, am I still bitter? Am I still as critical? Like harsh criticism. Everybody's an idiot. Am I still as harshly critical today as I was 10 years ago? Like everybody's a flipping moron. God loves me and I love him, but everybody else is an idiot. Like, 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 am I still as lustful? Do I have as many sexual hang-ups about who I'm loving and when I'm loving sexually? Do, am, I, am I still as big a sexual mess now as who I used to be? These are really, really important things. Uh, uh, do I care more or less for the poor now than I used to? Is my attitude becoming more and more, uh, they're poor for a reason, they're idiots, and they just need to work harder and get a flipping job. And by the way, I've loved Jesus for 25 years. Am I, is the love of God causing me to become more calcified on the inside? Or has it tenderized me? Is it causing me to see the poor in a whole new way? As, as Eugene Peterson says, the poor are not a problem to be fixed but a people to be embraced. Like, am, am I taking on that heart? See, here's one of the things I know, I know about us, especially, like, even in this room, especially, uh, we'll just talk about the vineyard. One of the things I know about us in the vineyard is that sometimes we just want to keep our arms as far away from the poor as we can. Uh, sometimes we like to have attitudes that say, well, they deserve it. They get what they deserve. Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe, they're, maybe people are poor because they never had a chance. And maybe they don't have a job because they never were educated and they weren't educated because they never had a chance because they never had a home that was stable so they could finish high school and get a decent degree and go somewhere. Maybe it's not as easy as you think it is. See, this is where we need to, to let the love of God penetrate us a little bit. Sometimes it's really easy to get in our Republican ghettos of how everything works and totally get separated from who Jesus is and what he's doing among us. Like, am I just as critical? Am I just as jacked up? Am I just as sexually addicted? Am I just as, as, am I just as pill-popping obsessed as I used to be five years ago? See, we have, to, we have to take stock of this because the love of God changes us. 
it changes us. And here's why the love of God changes us. Because it would be unloving for God to leave you as you are. It would be unloving for God to leave you as you are. This doesn't always happen quick. This doesn't always happen like this. And God loves you in the process. And God loves you in the pain. And God loves you when you decide to cooperate with the grain of the universe. And then in the midst of cooperating with the grain of the universe, you fall down and you go right back to where you were. God loves you. And then you get up and you go and you try and you fall down. And God loves you. And he picks you up and you try again. Like no matter how many times you fall down, it doesn't matter. But the love of God is that force which is bringing us to a place where we can be a brand new person. Here's what Paul says. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, I am a new creation, right? The truth is everybody here is a new creation. The, the real question is, am I, am I living into my true reality or am I living in my false self? How do we live there? Well, we just begin to cooperate with the love of God. And oftentimes cooperating with the love of God means this first. It means learning how to love ourselves first. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you understand if Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, you'll never love your neighbor as much as you first love yourself. It actually requires that you love yourself. Some of us need to go ahead and just forgive ourselves and let ourselves off the hook and try again. Let's just all shake our head. Help me. Don't shout me down because I'm preaching good. Come on. The love of God changes us. It would be unloving to do so. And there are so many examples in the scripture, but I'll share just one with you and then we'll be finished. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is John chapter 21. It's the end of the gospel. And Peter has just a day or two before disowned Jesus. And how many times did Jesus, did Peter disown Jesus? Three times. I don't know who he is. I don't know who he is. I'm telling you, I don't know who he is. And this is when Jesus is on trial. And why is Peter disowning Jesus? Because he's scared. I mean, that's just it, right? He's been with Jesus. He's seen all this stuff. But at the end of the day, he's just scared. And who can blame him? Because Peter knows what's about to happen. Jesus is about to get strung up. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to get nailed to a cross. Does that make me foolish? I don't think so. And so Peter denies Jesus three times, right when Jesus needed a friend the most. All of his friends left him. Then Jesus gets resurrected. Flesh and bone, blood and heart, Jesus is back. And then Jesus does the opposite of what you and I would do if our friends sold us out, we got killed, and then we're resurrected. See, if, if, if our friend sold us out, we got killed, and then we were resurrected, we'd go Arnold Schwarzenegger on everyone. <laughs> Time back. We would strap the machine guns on. <laughs> Done. Right? And isn't it wonderful news that Jesus is never the guy shooting someone? I'm just, I'm particularly thankful. Jesus is never that guy. Part of the message here is that Jesus is not the guy pulling the trigger, ever. Jesus comes back into the very guy who sold him out. He goes and finds him, and there on the seashore, Peter's gone back to fishing, which is to say, Peter's like, I'm done with this Jesus thing. I'm, I'm going back to what I used to do. And he sees Peter on the shore. 
Peter jumps into the water, swims over to him. Jesus got a little fire, already cooked up some fish, made breakfast. By the way, Jesus is always doing his best stuff around food and a meal. Like, if you got something big to do, you ought to cook something. For real. Yeah, don't ask her to marry her unless you got something cooked, proper cooked. Anyway, Jesus, Jesus comes to Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, you know I love you. He says, feed my lambs. And a second time he says, Peter, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know I love you. He says, well, take care of my sheep. And then a third time, and this just, can you imagine being there? And all the disciples are there too, by the way. And it says they cut, cut Peter to the heart. Do you love me, Peter? And Peter says, you know I love you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. Embraced by the love of God. Can I tell you the rest of the story? It changed Peter forever. He never denied Jesus another time in his life. He got courageous. You don't become courageous by trying to be courageous. And you don't become brave by trying to be... I'm about to say cuss words. You know what I'm trying to say. You don't become brave by trying to be somebody awesome. You don't become courageous by trying to be Jason Bourne. You become brave and you become courageous by experiencing the love of God. Peter never denied Jesus again. Never. He became brave and courageous. And at the end of his life, the Roman authority strung him up and crucified him like Jesus. And when they were about to nail the nails into his hands and feet, Peter says to them, do not crucify me like they did my Lord. Turn me upside down. I'm not worthy. And so Peter was crucified upside down. How does a person become so transformed? How does a coward become so courageous? Oh, it's the love of God. And it's not because you're good. And it's not because you're courageous. And it's not because you're smart. It's because God is wonderful. Amen? Amen. Man, isn't this place just like vibrating right now with the love of God? Man, I could go halfway new age in here. It's, it's... Some people are like, I'm very uncomfortable with that. I just mean like this place is like humming. I just feel the love of God. Anyway, uh, hey, why don't we do this? Uh, why don't we do this? We should respond to the love of God. So why don't everyone just stand up? And if you're on ministry team this morning, can you go back to that table? I know it's a little bit awkward, but for the next four weeks when we do ministry, it'll just have to be back there. And so if you need to respond to ministry, and I guess probably more than a few here do you can go back there and we've got some people who know how to pray for others who are willing to do that but before we pray a prayer of benediction i do want to do this is is there anybody here who has never responded to the love of god like uh, you've never followed jesus you've lived mostly on the outside you've never committed to being a disciple uh to put it in southern baptist uh, language uh you've never been saved is there anybody here who just needs to respond to the love of god and you need the the, the saving work of jesus in your life if that's you can you just put your hand up is there anybody here you've never done that and you need to I know we're all facing each other, and that makes it awkward, but it's, it's actually not as awkward as it seems. Look at me. I probably got pit stains. I'm up here. Is there anybody here, anybody here that needs to respond to the love of God for the first time? Okay. Well, then let's do this. Let's hold our hands out this morning. I'm going to pray, and then if you need to respond to the message at all, you can go back there where Dusty and Emily are, and they will pray for you. And if you need prayer for anything, you can actually go back there. God, we just love you. And we're, we're asking that you'd help us to learn to love you more. 
God, we just confess as a church that the grain of the universe is love. And God, we, we don't want to go against the grain. We want to go with the flow. Father, we ask right now that there would be just this overwhelming sense of the love of the Father among us. God, I ask that you would baptize us all with the reality that we are loved. Indiscriminately and totally, we are beloved. Before my name is Adam, it is beloved. Before my name is Connor, it is beloved. And before my name is Hannah, before my name is River, before my name is Zach or Seth or David or Christina, before my name is John, before my name is Mike, my name is beloved. Before my name is Joyce, my name is beloved. God, I ask that you would send a rogue wave of your affection and that you would hit us with it. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, who loved us while we were sinners. Amen. Amen. Give somebody a high five and a hug. If you need to respond, you go right back there. Thank you again for stopping by the podcast at the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening here at the Vineyard, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Until next time, peace to you.